Hey, if you have your Bibles, grab them and you can turn to the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. The same one we've been turning to now for weeks. Um, if you're on a device, you want to go to the ESV version, if you want to track with us. Nehemiah chapter 4. Man, I would love for you to think back as we're getting started here on a time when you had to endure something. Maybe you don't have to think back on a time you had to endure something, but it's just, it's right there at the center of your mind. You're thinking about it very much in the present. It's happening right now. Maybe it has been a season of sickness or suffering that you recall or that you're experiencing right now that you are having to endure through, or it's a, maybe a job situation that has gone really sour. I was talking to somebody recently who was in that kind of a situation. Maybe it was a just a relocation to, to another city or state. Maybe you're somebody that's, that's new into Ashland and you had to leave friends and you had to leave family and it's caused you to have to endure some of those really difficult things that come with transitions. Um, maybe some of you have had to endure a time when your friends or family turned their backs on you, you experienced some level of betrayal. For some of you, maybe you're in the middle of a year already just even at the beginning of 2022 where it just feels like you're filled with so much intense worry and fear because maybe your livelihood is unknown or uncertain or feels like maybe it's in jeopardy for you. The reason why we need endurance is because we face resistance, right? The reason why we need endurance is because we face resistance, resistance to our way of life, Resistance to our beliefs, resistance to our dreams, or even just resistance to our sense of rootedness, our sense of belonging, right? If there was no resistance in our life, there would there'd be no need for endurance, right? The reason why we need to endure through things is because there are things literally around every corner that we feel like are pushing against us. And this is what we mean when we say endurance. This is how we might define endurance. And it's this, the power of enduring an unpleasant or difficult process or situation without giving away. I didn't come up with that. That's our boy Webster right there that, that came up with that one. But here's what we know about God and where he's at in the midst of our resistance that he is calling us and that he is an, he's equipping us to endure through. We know that God has a future for his people, listen to this, that resistance prepares us to receive with greater endurance, with greater hope, and with greater joy. So when I was a kid, I was part of a youth ministry uh, at a church, and once a year, we took a retreat to this island off of the Pacific coast called Catalina Island. And so the way they set this whole thing up is we would all take a boat out to the island, and they would send the fellas all the way hiking across the island to the other side of the island, where we would camp, and then when we were done camping for a few days, we would hike all the way across the island back to the other side, where the rest of the, the group was, was already set up and they were already doing their thing. There was a guy named Ronnie Martin in the group who would say, here's an idea. Why don't we have the boat drop us off on the side of the island where we'll be camping? 
Just a thought, right? That's probably the least shocking thing most of you have ever heard me say, right? Of course, the reason why they ignored my wise and reasonable idea uh, was because we wouldn't experience the good, I guess, that came from the challenges we would face hiking together, right? Again, I thought my argument was pretty valid because camping plus hiking does not equal glamping, which is what I'm far more drawn to, right? But we would also miss what happened on our journey back down the mountain into the main camp, which was this great celebration that they would prepare for all the returning hikers, campers, not glampers, right? And they would prepare this big feast and there'd be all kinds of cheering like we were returning from war. We weren't returning from war. To me, it felt like returning from war. You know, it was one of those kinds of things, but we would have missed out on that. We would have missed out on the reward that we would receive for enduring through the resistance that we face. And so today, we're gonna see just how Nehemiah, just how the Israelites uh, endured through the resistance they faced as they began repairing the walls of Jerusalem. Now remember last week, what we saw was the family of God comes together. Nehemiah finally makes the trip from Persia back to Jerusalem. He surveys the damage done to the gates of Jerusalem. He surveys the damage done to all the walls surrounding Jerusalem. The king gives him permission to go back there and repair and renew everything that had fallen into ruin. So he gathers up the people, he surveys the damage, and they get to work. All the families of the people of Israel come together and side by side, they just start doing the work. And we're gonna do this, we're gonna look at this today by going through a whopping three chapters of Nehemiah. How will we do that? How will we be done in 35 minutes? I don't know. Maybe we'll be done in 35 hours. Um, that's what we're going to find out right now. But you guys are in chapter 4. So as we begin in chapter 4, we see that the opposition that these guys are facing is fierce. They are facing fierce opposition against the Israelites. And it's so fierce that Nehemiah has the people arm themselves so that they could work in shifts around the clock and protect themselves if they were attacked. That's how badly their enemies were pushing against them to not see these walls being rebuilt. We pick up here in chapter in uh, verse 7 of chapter 4, and it says, And when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. And then we move up to verse 16 and it said, from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with another. Now, this already sounds like a lot to me, all right? I mean, there's only been a few times when I've come into work at the warehouse during the week, I've had to arm myself, right? Because I've been afraid that there's like some kind of resistance, you know, facing me. Obviously, that's never happened. 
Um, but this sounds like a lot already. These guys are faced with rebuilding the walls, with repairing the gate, and they can only use one hand. They can, they can only have one hand on that hammer, and they have to have another hand on something that's going to protect themselves in case the opposition that they were facing was going to try to stop them. I mean, I mean th those are not incredibly pleasant working conditions. And we've all worked under working conditions that haven't been great. They probably haven't been this bad. But if that wasn't enough, there was also a famine in the land simultaneously. And it turns out that the landowners there were take, taxing the Israelites to the point where they had to begin to mortgage their fields and their vineyards and their houses in order to buy the grain that they needed to eat. So, so Nehemiah just kind of steps up and he, he calls these men who are taxing the Israelites and says, hey, you cannot do this to these men and women who are sacrificing everything to repair these walls. Look at what he says in chapter 5, uh, verse 11. He says, return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. And they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Now, Nehemiah, this is a brother that had been appointed governor to oversee this project. And what this guy does is he puts his money where his mouth is as we continue on in the passage. And he does that by not demanding his daily food allowance because this would have only added a further burden to the people. Look what it says that we pick up in 18. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, Six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. And look what he says. He says, remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. So Nehemiah steps in. He says, hey, stop taxing these people. They're trying to do this work. You're making it very difficult. In fact, uh, you, you're enslaving them in a way that, are, that their enemies are attempting to enslave them. So pull back from that. Show grace. Have mercy. And by the way, I'm, I'm stepping into that process with you. I'm not going to lay any deeper or heavier burdens on you as well. Nehemiah was legit, as we would say, right? He wasn't corrupt like so many of the governors that came before him. But even then, as we'll see, the resistance doesn't let up because these opponents that they have are relentless. They put together a plan to conspire against Nehemiah and the people by saying that, in fact, what's going on here is that the people rebuilding the walls were actually plotting a rebellion against the king. We go to chapter 6 and verse 6, and this is what it says. It says, and it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. So this is one of their enemies kind of throwing some shade at them and saying, you intend to rebel, that is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. 
So they're leveling all kinds of stuff at Nehemiah and the people. And then it says in verse 7, you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. And then Nehemiah is talking in verse 8 and he says, Then I said, sent to him saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. So all through this, we see the people as they're stepping through this rebuilding process. Man, they are just enduring through what seems like relentless resistance. And then, 52 days later, the wall is finished. They endure. They push through. And all the enemy nations, it tells us, surrounding them are humbled and they're filled with fear. In other words, they were astounded at the resiliency and the strength of a nation that could accomplish what they did under the circumstances that they had to endure. And then we finish as you get into chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, with Nehemiah handing charge of the gates over to faithful brothers who would then be responsible for guarding it. So that's the quickest work I've ever done through three chapters in a sermon. Um, if you've been here long enough, you would know that to be true. But what a mess. Like I read through this story and I just think, oh man, like what a mess. The story probably feels like a metaphor for some of you, right? We feel like everywhere we go in our lives during certain seasons, there's something or someone trying to stop us, right? Somebody trying to slow our progress question our motives, not want to see us succeed. I mean, sometimes I'll say, I mean, ask Melissa, don't ask her, ask Melissa. I mean, sometimes I'll say things like, the world is against me today, right? And that's usually when she's making me hang a shelf or a picture on a wall because she's too embarrassed for me to ask Zach Watson to come over and do it for me, you know? I am not too embarrassed to do that. But many times we face real resistance. And as we face real resistance, we need real endurance, right? We don't need, a, we don't need catchphrases. We don't need slogans. We don't need to wear t-shirts that have things on the back and on the front to inspire us. We don't need to drink the coffee mug that has the just do it Nike thing on it. Like that's not what we need. We need something that's coming from somewhere else that is going to encourage our hearts and build us toward the work that God has set before us to accomplish. We need something solid. We need what the Israelites experienced under the leadership of Nehemiah. So what are some of the characteristics contained in godly endurance that we learn from Nehemiah's story? In other words, let me phrase it like this. What does endurance, where does endurance come from? Where does it come from? Well, the first place we see it coming from here in Nehemiah 4 through 6 is it comes from bathing everything in prayer. Bathing everything in prayer. When you go back to chapter 4, verse 9, 
you see it says, and we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. It doesn't say we set a guard as a protection against them day and night and just prayed for the best. But he opened it. He set the foundation of what they were embarking on with prayer. Endurance comes from bathing everything in prayer. Some of you are like, good grief, man. I feel like every week it feels like all you do is read the passage, tell us to pray, then we pray, and go eat donuts. And I would say that's being real simple, but you're not that far off, all right? Um, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, listen to what he says. And sometimes Paul speaks in these short little statements, and we miss this. We, we miss how profound these statements are. Listen to how profound this is in Romans 12. He says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. How are we to rejoice in hope? How do we do that? How do you do that? How are you able to be patient in tribulation without the constancy of prayer in your life? That's what Paul is advocating here, and that's the pattern we see all through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah as every time they faced just this unbelievable resistance, we see the pattern of them going before God in prayer. What prayer does, listen to this, what prayer does is continually prepare your heart to remain unchanged towards Jesus if all of your circumstances remain unchanged. That's what prayer does for our hearts. That's what it does to the, the status and the quality and the shape of our hearts. Does that make sense? Prayer keeps your heart convinced of God's goodness even when all your circumstance threaten to convince you that he's not good, that he's in fact neglectful, that he is unable to sympathize with you. So we bathe all of our lives in prayer because Jesus told us prayer is how we don't lose heart. He told this parable about this, what he called a persistent widow. And he said, I'm, I'm telling you this parable so that you ought always to pray and not lose heart about this widow that went before this judge and she required justice and she wanted justice and she wouldn't leave this judge alone. Now, whether the judge thought she deserved justice or not is not the point. The point is that she was so persistent in going after this judge that he eventually grants her the justice she needs. And so there's this idea that when we feel like our lives are breaking down due to the resistance that is surrounding us and we need endurance, what Paul is saying here and what we see patterned for us in Nehemiah is, man, we pray. We go before the Lord. We say, God, help us. We pray a prayer as profound as, God, I don't know what to do, but I need your help. Help me. Strengthen me, intercede for me. That's the prayer that Nehemiah prays. And prayer is where endurance comes from. And that's why Nehemiah and the Israelites, that's one of the reasons why they had endurance. Endurance also comes from taking courageous 
action. Look at what it says in 4.15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. Some of us, and we talked about this a few weeks back, but some of us experience paralysis when we face any kind of resistance. And that's understandable. Sometimes we face things that are so difficult, that are so filled with trauma, that are so filled with things that are so heavy that they're going to follow us and they're going to leave a trace in our lives for years to come. Big things, heavy things, deep things, things that compound and get into our heart and get into our soul and they're hard to ever get out. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about when we talk about resistance. And sometimes it, it forces us back into paralysis. It forces us back into paralysis. And yet, it's for this very reason that God provides resistance so that we have the opportunity to take the kind of courageous action that leads to greater resilience, that leads to greater endurance. Now, let me just qualify here. Because when I talk about courageous action, it isn't always aggressive. Remember a couple weeks ago, I said, sometimes being courageous starts with just getting out of bed in the morning. And for some of us, that's a courageous action. At times, courageous action is, is stopping. It's, st it's stopping doing something that's unhelpful and pushes against our ability to endure. The question that Paul was asking in his letters is, does our courage lead us to Christ? For Paul, that was true courage in action. Where was the courage of Nehemiah and the Israelites leading them? Was it leading them to just rebuilding the wall? Was that really the end game? No, this was establishing back them back in the land that God had provided them so that he could rule over them. Right? It was leading to something bigger than the walls, bigger than the gates, bigger than the land. It was God. The courageous action was leading them back to God. And Paul talks about this. Does our courage, what is it leading us back, what is it leading us back to? Well, ultimately, it needs to lead us back to Christ. Paul says in Philippians 1.19, he says, For I know that through your prayers, listen to what he says, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's in a bad place. He's writing the Philippian church. And he's saying, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Endurance comes from taking courageous action in all the ways and shapes and forms that, that might need to play out in our lives in any given season. Endurance also comes from striving for unity through sacrifice. Look at what it says in chapter 5, verse 18. The second half of 18, it says, Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. 
Resistance means that not everybody is always on the same page as us. The world's answer to that many times is to double down, right? And don't let anybody come between you and what it is that you are setting out to do. Don't let anybody come between you and your dreams. You get out there, you take it, you own it, you claim it. We see a little bit of a different spirit here from Nehemiah. Because creating a sense of, and a spirit of unity means that we, we humble ourselves. We sacrifice like Nehemiah did for the encouragement and for the endurance of the people. Listen, we can better endure through resistance when we turn our attention to the needs of others and remove the focus off of ourselves for a minute, right? Paul reminds us again in Romans 15, 5, he says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So part of that harmoniousness that we experience with one another requires us to strive toward unity. And as we strive toward unity, many times it's gonna mean a particular kind of sacrifice. Why is that? Because this is where endurance comes from. So as I'm striving for unity with you, as I'm striving uh, to come to a place where I'm sacrificing for your good, my good is being accomplished in that. Right? Because I need endurance. And part of enduring is getting our eyes off of ourselves, getting them back to Christ. And we do that in a very tangible way when we're caring for the needs of others. And that also creates an incredible unity when people see our heart and our love for them. And this is what's happening again in Nehemiah. This is where endurance comes from. It also comes from using godly discernment. Look at what it says in chapter 6, verses 8. Then I sent him saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will be done. But now, O oh Lord, strengthen my hands. Endurance comes from using godly discernment like we see happening here with Nehemiah. Now, Resistance can dampen our spirits. And when our spirits are dampened, man, we make decisions that come from hearts that want to self-protect, from hearts that want to retreat. That's understandable, right? We can become prone in those moments to believing lies. Nehemiah could have believed the lies that these men were pushing as a way to become frightened, as a way to pull back, and as a way to stop the work that God had given them to accomplish. Nehemiah uses godly discernment by saying, and I paraphrase, these are clowns that are trying to deceive me for the sake of their own devices, for the sake of their own vision, for the sake of their own plotting. And it causes us then to think about Jesus during his temptations with Satan in the wilderness. It causes us to think about Jesus when he sat before Pilate being accused. And we think and we see 
such discernment from Jesus in these moments. Imagine the temptation to cave in and leave the mission incomplete. But God strengthened him in his humanness to be discerning and resolved in what he knew was true and what God had set him out to do in his mission to bear the sins of the world. Paul reminds us again, Philippians 1.9, he says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You see what the end game here is? With this knowledge and this discernment and this approving of what is excellent and be able to see through all the muck and see through all the mire and think with clarity and arrive at spirit-driven truth. It leads to being pure and blameless for the day of Christ. It leads to a life that is filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ. This is where endurance comes from, using godly discernment. It also comes from completing the work before us. Look at what it says in verse 15, chapter 6. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and felt greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. The people finish what they started. Now listen, we are a work in progress. Although we are a work in progress that doesn't end until we are face to face with Jesus in glory, there is good work that God gives us to finish. God sent Jesus to do a finished work that he's completing in us. So here's a question. What is a work in your life that maybe has remained undone because you've not endured through the resistance that you have faced to finish it. And maybe there's things in your life that you look around, maybe it's opportunities, maybe it's relationships, whatever it might be that God has placed before you, and maybe you have the tendency to pull back for a variety of reasons because you were met with resistance in the process. And there are things around you that can be good things and fruitful things, and things that amount to blessings in your life, but they, they lie unfinished around you. What's a work in your life that remains undone? Is it honoring to God to leave it undone? What does it say about your relationship with Jesus when you leave jobs and projects and goals around you perpetually Undone. What does it say about your resilience? Well, I, I, I know what it says about me. I, I know it says that I am, I'm very fragile and I'm very distrusting of what the Lord is doing and that at the first sign of discomfort, I retreat and I step back. I become very afraid very quickly because I think if there's resistance, it must mean that the Lord is not at work. What's so interesting about that is you see the opposite pattern in Scripture. 
He, scripture would tell us that if you never receive any resistance, that's what's actually not entirely of the Lord. So it's interesting that resistance does this thing that pulls us back, makes us doubt God's goodness or God's hand in what we're doing. And yet in Ezra and Nehemiah, we see that the resistance was the occasion to see God's good hand in what they were doing. Isn't that interesting? It's just the opposite of how we think about the things that we face. When the Israelites completed the wall, what does it say? Their enemies are floored. Their enemies cannot believe that they were able to get that wall up with a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other hand. I wouldn't be able to get up the wall with hammers in both hands. You guys know that, right? There's no amount of hammering that's gonna get up that wall if you've tasked Big R to do the work. Let's just get that out of the way. We're clear on that. But these brothers and sisters were able to finish both facing the resistance and enduring through it while all of these things were happening in their hearts through the work of Nehemiah. So here's what we know about God. God typically does not give us a map that contains the shorter route the path of least resistance through life. The shorter route is desired by us, desired by me, desired by you, but rarely ordained by God, interestingly enough. Why is that? Well, as we read scripture, we understand that it's because good things come out of bad things when we faithfully follow God down the long road that he lays out for us. And by the way, that's a road that is filled with resistance because that's how God builds resilience in you. That's how he builds resilience in me. It's also a road that we see mile markers on, right? So when I walk to church, I live a mile and a half up the road. When I walk to church, there are no mile markers along the way. It's not a journey, right? It takes me 12 minutes to get to church if I crawl in the rain. That's how close I live to the church. But on a long journey, man, I'm able to chart my progress. So God may not give us shortcuts, but he does give us mile markers in our lives. He gives us leaders like Nehemiah. He gives us friends like Nehemiah. He gives us people and pastors to walk us through the years. He gave the people of Israel a Nehemiah who served as a model of Christ who sacrificed for us so that we may endure the same things that he endured through. I mean, I, I gain encouragement when I know someone who has endured what I have endured is walking with me. Got my friend Brian Croft here um, who's, who drove up from Louisville yesterday to spend a, a night with us. Brian Croft, man, a dear brother, sat with me and Melissa late into the night last night. And what did we do? We shared things that we have endured and are enduring through. Who do you have? Who is your Nehemiah that's helping you endure through the things that you need to because they, they are filled with resistance? Who do you have? Who could you seek out 
to find the things that you need to do that we learned about today, which is the place where endurance comes from. Who can encourage you in these things? Who can encourage you to bathe everything in prayer? Who can encourage you to use godly discernment and help you use godly discernment? Who can help you take courageous action when you are absolutely at your weakest point? Who can encourage you to complete the work that you are too afraid to step back into to complete? Who can encourage you to endure? It is because Jesus is kind that he allows resistance in our lives so that we become people who learn resilience. It is because Jesus endured the cross and despite the shame that we can endure the costly routes that the Christian life takes us through. It is because Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you, that you can endure resistance as a person who is never alone. It is because Jesus said, I will be with you always until the end of the age, that you can endure through this life with the highest level of reassurance imaginable. It is because Jesus said in this world, you will have trouble, but fear not, I have overcome the world, that you can endure through resistance. Because trouble will not end up being the most significant moment in your life. It is because of Jesus that we can endure through resistance.